Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Christian faith and a confession adopted by this church. And we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 19. So we'll read that Lord's Day. We're going to be focusing particularly on the second half of that Lord's Day, but we'll read the whole Lord's Day. Lord's Day 19, there the question is, why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. So far the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as you've been working your way through the Apostles' Creed, uh, you're also working your way through history. Uh, You quickly realize as you read the Apostles' Creed as a summary of the the basic core doctrines of the Christian faith, you quickly realize that that the Christian faith is a historical faith. Uh, In other words, it's a faith that has convictions about history. Uh, That's part of what it means to be a Christian, that we believe certain things to be true about what's happened in the past and also what's happening in the present and what will happen in the future. Well, where we're at right now in the Apostles' Creed, we're at that transition point from present to future. So last time in Lord's Day 18, uh, you saw how Christ ascended and is now reigning in heaven. Well, now in in, uh, Lord's Day 19, we start to think about what Christ will do in the future. The Apostles' Creed is very brief when it comes to the future compared to what it says about the past. It says simply, Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Let's see then what Scripture means by that, where in fact we get that from Scripture And then I hope also to have some time to stop and reflect on on that teaching and the impact that 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 faith, that conviction has on our lives. There's no question that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, that he will return bodily and in history. That expectation, it's written all over the New Testament. Uh, Just to give a a few examples in the account of Christ's ascension into heaven, uh, already there the angels who were present with the disciples made it very clear to them that this Jesus who has gone up from you will come back in the manner that he has gone up. So it's already there at, at the time of Christ's departure. A few chapters later, uh, you find Peter speaking to a a group of Gentiles, 
And Peter says this to them. This is Acts 10, verse 42. He says, He that Jesus commanded us to preach to the, to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. You find the Apostle Paul teaching the same thing a few chapters later in Acts 17. This is on Mars Hill at Athens. Uh, Paul is, is preaching the gospel uh, to the pagan Greeks. And, and there Paul says, uh, this is Acts 17 verse 30, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed And of this, he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. So, right from the beginning of Christian history, since the very ascension of Christ, the church and the apostles recognized that history is headed in a certain direction. uh, That it's headed, uh, ever since Christ's ascension, uh, towards a destination to which is getting closer and closer every day, and that destination is the final judgment, when Christ will return and judge the earth. He will judge the living, those who are on the earth, and the dead, those who have dwelt on the earth in the past. Uh, he will gather His church He will cause the dead to rise, and He will judge them all, both those who loved Him and those who hated Him. That's why Paul's warning to the Gentiles in in Athens is so severe. Uh, God may have overlooked former times, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because that day is coming when He will judge the earth. History is very quickly running forward towards that day. Uh, And everyone who is confronted with the kingdom uh, of of Christ through the preaching of the gospel will either repent or will find themselves on the wrong side of judgment on that day. So what will happen on the day of judgment? Well, Scripture uh, teaches us several things. First, Every person, every individual will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and they will have to give an account. That includes us believers. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 14, verse 10. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He says a couple of verses later, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. There's a scene in Revelation 20 that shows uh, something of what that day will be like. That's the text that we read uh, earlier. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. That's a reference to Christ. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and then books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So in this passage, you you see two sets of books. Uh, There are the books that are opened in verse 12, and and, and those are the books that the dead are judged by. Uh, What do those books contain? They contain all of our works, all of our words, uh, perhaps even all of our thoughts. What the Lord Jesus warns us in Matthew uh, chapter 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you are justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 
that's the one book then that will be opened on the final day. The scripture doesn't tell us what level of detail you can expect to find in that book, but we as believers should, should certainly be prepared to have all of our, our words, all of our thoughts exposed on that day. Uh, we're called as Christians to live in anticipation that every secret thing will be revealed. There's no sense hiding on earth what will be revealed in heaven. The things that you, you've done that, that you've been hiding, that you'd be mortified if other people knew about them, be prepared to have those things announced aloud. All of us will stand before that throne. So there's that book. And then there's another book, isn't there, in Revelation 20 that is open. And this is called the Book of Life. That book contains not deeds, but names. The names of those who believed in the Savior whom God sent, namely Jesus Christ. It is those who, during their life on earth, confessed their sins, turned to Christ, repented, uh, and put their hope in God through Christ. If anyone's name, Revelation uh, 20 says, if anyone's name was not found uh, in the book of life, then he will be judged by the other set of books and he will be thrown into the lake of fire. God's word is not at all ambiguous about the doctrine of hell. There's so many verses that warn us about hell uh, that, that you cannot miss it. It's one of the clearest doctrines in Scripture, even though it's probably the, the most uncomfortable uh, and difficult to accept. Now, God's Word teaches us that hell is both terrible and eternal. In Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus, uh, who in fact talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, He tells us that at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, elsewhere, Jesus describes hell as an experience of outer darkness, uh, utter loneliness, distance from God, distance from other people. In Revelation, it's described as so terrible that those facing it will long for death, for the rocks to fall on them and crush them. And as terrible as hell is, Scripture also teaches that it is eternal. Jesus warns His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, in Revelation, we read, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There's no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. There's no notion in Scripture anywhere that one can pay one's way out of hell. There's no end to the suffering. After endless years, it's still only the beginning. That's the reality of hell, and that's why the gospel is so urgently preached, uh, why, why we are commanded to repent now while there's still breath in our lungs, life in our bodies. Repent and turn to Christ now before uh, the day of judgment. 
It's not an insincere call either, uh, and it's a very simple call. Uh, Repent, believe, turn to Christ. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. It's great comfort, great promise there in, in the gospel, and it's for even the worst of sinners. But no, that day is coming. History is rushing forward towards that day, and as Christ gathers His church and builds His kingdom, it will culminate in that day of judgment. That's why the gospel is here now, confronting us with our sin now, and the time for repentance is now. Well, as we reflect on, on these things, I wonder whether it's hard for you to be comforted by the knowledge of the final day of judgment. And the reason I mention that is that's how this question is worded in the, in the catechism. It's not what warning is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, but what comfort is it to you that he will, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, for some Christians, maybe it's hard to be comforted by this knowledge because they haven't yet repented of their sin. They're not yet trusting in Christ, and in that case, it is right that they find no comfort in this terrible truth. Uh, for those who know that they're still in sin, who refuse to repent of, of their sin, this, this biblical truth is not meant to be comforting. It should be a warning. But for those who do struggle against their sin, though they find it a daily struggle, though they fall often, uh, yet the catechism gives us a helpful and comforting reminder. Don't forget, the one who's sitting on the throne, who will judge the living and the dead, uh, the one to whom you will have to give an account, is Jesus Christ, the very same person who died for your sins. Uh, that's who you're going to have to give your account to. Jesus Christ will be your judge. God has given judgment over to Him. He gets to make the call. And that's immensely comforting because He knows the price that was paid for your sin because He Himself paid it. He's not going to forget that His blood was spilled to save you and to pay for your sins. Uh, and as we look f- ahead to that day, it's not just that we have hope that we will be accepted by Him on that day, it's we already now, we already now experience His love. The one who loves us now is the one who will judge us on that day. So there, there is comfort there for us. But there's more to say, too, about how this knowledge of the day of judgment comforts us. Notice that the catechism doesn't only say it's comforting that Christ will be our judge. It's also, we're also supposed to take comfort in in the, the knowledge that He will cast all of His and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all His chosen ones to Himself in, into heavenly joy and glory. Are you comfortable saying that that's a comfort to you. That Christ will cast His enemies into hell is a comfort to you. I think many of us, when we, when we read this, we perhaps feel a tinge of, of, of guilt. We, we feel hesitant. We think, I, I'm not sure I'm supposed to be comforted by that. It feels vengeful. 
Uh, I feel like I'm not supposed to want Christ to do that to his and to my enemies. Surely any Christian who, who knows himself to be a sinner feels at least some degree of, of discomfort with that statement. Is it right for me to be comforted by the thought of what Christ will do to his enemies? That's why I chose Psalm 69 as one of our readings for uh, this, this afternoon. Psalm 69 reflects that same emotion that you see here in the catechism of, of finding comfort in God's judgment. Uh, and perhaps you and I had the same experience of uh, discomfort or hesitancy even as we read Psalm 69. What do, what do you do with psalms like these? Well, it might help uh, if, if you like to follow along in Psalm 69. Uh, we're going to work our way through a few of the verses there. As I mentioned, it's a psalm written by David. And in that psalm, over and over, David pleads his cause before, before God. Uh, David knows he's not a perfect man. Right? You see that in, in Psalm 69. God, you know my sins and, and my folly. Uh, and yet, at the same time, he is being persecuted without just cause. Uh, he says, verse 4, Must I restore what I did not steal? Uh, in fact, he says it's, it's because of the name of God that he's bearing reproach and being persecuted. Uh, verse 7, It is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. Verse 9, The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. You think uh, as you read psalms like these, and there's so many of them in the book of Psalms, you think of the sufferings that are being experienced by our brothers and sisters around the world uh, who, who experience this very thing, having to restore what they didn't steal, uh, being, being, uh, bearing reproach for the sake of God, being treated as a laughingstock, uh, being ridiculed, or even worse, being, uh, being uh, imprisoned or hurt uh, because of the gospel or having their lives taken away, uh, they experience this, this inner anguish, the deep injustice of what is being done to them. In the middle of, of these persecutions, then, the psalmist turns to God in prayer and, and cries out for deliverance. And part of his prayer is that God will bring justice on the heads of his enemies. Verse 22, he says, let their own table before them become a snare. When they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. That's a heavy song, isn't it? And the question is, can we as Christians sing songs like that? Is it right for Christians to think this way? It's an especially hard question when we think of the words of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those uh, who, who persecute you. Uh, is that inconsistent with what we see in Psalms like these? Uh, what are we as Christians to, to do here? Is Jesus contradicting David? 
Well, it's interesting to note that Psalm 69 is quoted no less than four times in the New Testament, uh, including one quotation from these, these very difficult verses. Uh, in fact, in at least three separate uh, occasions, this psalm is quoted on the lips of the Lord Jesus Himself. Never once do we get any indication that Jesus or the New Testament writers are ashamed of this psalm. Uh, or of the emotions within it. And it's important to recognize the New Testament nowhere criticizes uh, what uh, these are called the imprecatory psalms. Uh, Nowhere are we told you're not supposed to sing those anymore or you're not supposed to think that way anymore. In fact, when we think about it, what does Paul say in Romans 12? Uh, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That's sobering, isn't it? We're supposed to take some comfort from the wrath of God that gives us the strength to not take vengeance ourselves. And Paul himself uh, embodied this in his life as he served those who persecuted him. Uh, But at the same time, uh, we see Paul also crying out to God. He says to Timothy, uh, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. It's the knowledge of God's judgment that gives us the comfort and the strength to not take vengeance ourselves. You see the same attitude in the catechism, uh, and and you think about that in the context of the Reformation when many of the believers were uh, being dragged before the courts, uh, were being being imprisoned, and in many cases were even uh, being killed for their faith. They found comfort in the knowledge that God will cast His enemies into eternal condemnation. You don't get for a moment the sense that the catechism's embarrassed uh, about uh, finding comfort in this terrible truth, even though perhaps it does make us in our day uncomfortable. Now, of course, we, we, we wonder, how does this square with what the Lord Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies and to pray for those who, who persecute us? Well, it's, it's the knowledge of God's judgment that enables us to do exactly what Jesus says. Uh, It's because we know God will judge them that we find the strength to say, then I for my part will love them. Uh, Jesus, in fact, says it, uh, love those who, who hate you, bless those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, do to them as God has done to you and leave judgment before the throne of God. Be children of your Father uh, and show that, embody that in the world. You also see this in in, in some of these very psalms themselves. Uh, Psalm 35, another psalm of David. Uh, The psalmist says, when my enemies were sick, I fasted for them. I wept for them like one who mourns his brother or his mother. Uh, the, The psalmists were not strangers to loving their enemies. In fact, you think of David with, with uh, King Saul, Saul who persecuted him, yet David uh, constantly, when he had opportunity to take vengeance, instead he withheld his hand and said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Uh, they were no strangers to, to the ethic that the Lord Jesus teaches us also. Uh, it's the knowledge of God's judgment uh, that keeps us then from, from taking vengeance and also keeps us uh, from, from taking vengeance for the wrong reasons. Uh, see, when we, when we do give in to that impulse to get revenge, to get back 
at those who, who make us suffer, more often than not, we're not doing that out of a love for God or a love for God's honor or God's name. When we take vengeance, it's because our honor uh, has been uh, offended or because we have been hurt. It's not because we love God's honor or His justice. Uh, otherwise, we would be equally upset at other offenses against God's honor and justice that don't personally touch us. Now, we, when we seek revenge, when we lash out, uh, we do so because our pride has been hurt. Well, Christ calls us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Him. Uh, we are to repent of the fact that our honor far more often than not, matters more to us than, than God's honor. Uh, we are to begin honoring Him, worshiping Him instead of ourselves. The fact is, our, our self-worship, our pride, was so offensive to God that Christ had to die to pay the penalty for that sin. So to be a Christian is to recognize the greatest offense that's ever committed is not committed horizontally from one person to another. The greatest offense that's ever committed is always committed vertically, uh, the sin of man against God. And what this means for us then as Christians is uh, we relinquish every thought of revenge uh, because we realize that when others sin against us, the great tragedy is not that they've dishonored us, but that they've dishonored God and that God uh, will, will justify Himself. And so Christ calls us to see things as God sees them, to think God's thoughts after Him. Uh, the offenses that we suffer are small in comparison to the offenses that God suffers, uh, both from them and from us. And we know that God will bring perfect justice, uh, and, and that apart from their repentance, apart from their salvation in Christ, they will experience every ounce of justice that they deserve, and probably when we, when we see it, it will be even more than we ourselves would have wished upon them. And if you think about what eternal judgment means for them, who could not pray for their enemies, who are so close to being lost forever. At the same time, coming back to Psalm 69, that doesn't mean that the godly don't suffer injustice and that when they do, uh, God, God gives them the room. God gives them the freedom to cry out to Him, to lay their cause before Him. And scripture is compassionately honest about the fact that the righteous suffer in this life, but God hears their cry. You think of uh, the, this great number of imprecatory psalms you find in the book of Psalms, uh, many of which we find ourselves uncomfortable with singing, uh, and yet these are psalms God has placed in His Word as a special gift to those who are suffering. Sometimes those are psalms they get to sing that we don't get to sing because we don't understand, we don't experience that same injustice. They know that God is the one who was wronged even more than they are, and they know that God is the one who will carry out justice. And so when the, the righteous suffer injustice, uh, instead of lashing out, instead of taking revenge, they cry out to Him for, for vindication. And so too for us, when we suffer injustice, uh, as so many Christians are suffering even now, it is natural and it's right for us to cry out to God 
for justice. Yes, we pray for the repentance of our persecutors. We pray for the repentance of, uh, of those who do evil in our, in our day and age as well. Uh, and yet, God invites us to pour out our cry before Him. Uh, the righteous who, who experience the deep brokenness of being violated get to cry out to God, God, bring justice that only you can bring. Uh, remember these, these people who, who, who violate your perfect justice and they think nothing of it. Uh, pour out your indignation upon them. In fact, you think of the saints in heaven in Revelation 6, the saints uh, who cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There's nothing that so uh, sickens the soul like seeing injustice uh, and, and experiencing it. Uh, in North America, perhaps we are blessed to experience a very little uh, of, of such injustice, uh, but we must not look down on the cry, uh, the righteous cry of those who do, to say, oh, you shouldn't be praying for God's vengeance, uh, because we, we do. We pray for God's uh, perfect justice. It's part of being made in God's image that, uh, that we're not okay with injustice, that we're sickened by it, that we are enraged by it. The, the, the real tragedy is that we don't uh, find ourselves sickened by injustice as we often ought. Uh, we're only sickened by some sins, usually the ones committed against us, and not by others. Well, may, we, may we never look down on, on the cry of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who read psalms like these, who pray uh, and sing psalms like these. That's why David would, could write this song, uh, and that's why the Lord Jesus himself also took this song on his lips. They were thinking God's thoughts after him. They're not looking for personal vengeance or revenge. Uh, uh, they're, they're bearing up under unspeakable injustice and directing their prayer to God. And so it, it is the comfort then of, uh, of many Christians around the world, and it should be our comfort too, that, that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. Every injustice that has ever been committed is recorded in his books, and he will administer perfect justice. Now, those who have oppressed or abused others in, their, in this life will not get away with it. They will not escape his justice, even if they manage to escape justice here on earth. That's a comforting thought to anyone who's, who's experienced abuse or injustice and seen the perpetrators uh, all but get away with it. And God's justice will be perfect, horrifyingly, terribly perfect. That is, and that should be a comforting thought that carries us through our sufferings and persecutions. If it should be God's will that we should face persecution, uh, that's our comfort that God gives to us as we endure, uh, that He will see to it that justice will be done. Well, as we experience then injustice, 
Let us also for our part remember the perfect justice of God. Let's remember too our brothers and sisters what Hebrews says. Remember those who are in prison since you yourselves are also in the body. Remember those who are suffering. And, and that then gives us some room to pray these songs. Uh, we, we pray them not necessarily because we ourselves uh, have experienced such terrible injustice, but we do so uh, together in the community of the saints with those who currently are. We cry out with them, God, you bring justice. And then we say also with them, and we for our part, we for our part will love our enemies. We will remember those who persecute us and seek their repentance and will trust that if they don't repent, you will take care of the rest. Amen.